kind of formally closed the study in the book of Acts. This morning I would like to take a message from 2 Timothy chapter 4. So if you would turn there, this is kind of transition. What happened to Paul after the book of Acts? And even we'll mention some of the work of the disciple. Well, not some of the outcome of the, the apostles. Um, as you recall, Acts records, depending on who you talk to, Acts records three missionary journeys by the Apostle Paul. And some commentaries even call this trip that he made from Jerusalem to Rome while he was under guard his fourth missionary journey because he had always wanted to go to Rome and he was certainly doing missionary work, sharing the gospel on his way there. So four missionary journeys recorded in the book of Acts. And there was a fifth that we don't have an official record of. At the end of Acts, the Apostle Luke or Luke wrote that Paul was in prison for two years and then was released. It was after that he took another mission trip to the island of Crete along with a young man by the name of Titus. Titus 1, verses 4 and 5, as Paul wrote, To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as directed to you. The believers on the island of Crete were not really formal formed as a church or congregation, and Titus was left there, trained and instructed by Paul to establish churches, set some elders in place, set some pastors in place, put some leadership and organization to the churches there. After he left Crete, Paul eventually ended up in Spain doing some work there. We have very little record of what went on there, in fact, no record except that he was there. Some historians even suggest that he made it to Great Britain for a time. We don't know for certain. First Timothy was written to Timothy while Paul was in prison the first time in Rome. There's approximately three to five years between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul, by that time, the Apostle Paul's ministry was experiencing some pushback, not from unbelievers who he was preaching to, but also from the Romans because Nero had come to power and he was trying to use any excuse to blame Christians for everything. Some of, us, some of you may remember that the story goes, and there are some historians who dispute this, but the story goes that Nero set fire to Rome because he wanted to clear out the slums and build a new city, new part of the city. It was his way of urban renewal. The political feedback from that was unfavorable, so he blamed the Christians. But there was a lot more resistance to Christianity because Romans we're beginning to blame the Christians if there was a bad crop or if there's any bit of drought or if there was bad weather. 
Christians got blamed for a lot. Persecution was beginning to build. And Paul was taken captive and brought back to Rome and put in prison once more, his last time. So he is writing to Timothy. Timothy is now the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Let's read Timothy 1. We'll just read down through verse 8 for now. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That may be enough for today. Let me pray before we go further. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word and its truth and these sober instructions from a man who is ready to be promoted, ready to enter in the presence of his Savior. May we look at these closely and may we apply them to our hearts and our understanding and our lives. May these words move us closer to the need for repentance and even the practice of repentance. We ask this for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. In Acts chapter 1, 13, you don't have to go there, just listen while I read. The book of Acts began when the disciples had entered the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Here the text, I'm just reading that one verse, the text lists the 11 disciples. I'm not quite certain that they were apostles yet, but they had been given a commission from the Lord. And perhaps at that moment they were officially noted as apostles. But they had to choose one more, and this, in this event, in this chapter, they prayed They fasted and prayed, and they cast lots between two men, and it fell upon Matthias, who became the twelfth, replacing Judas Iscariot, who was dead, who was the traitor. That began a great, powerful ministry of the early New Testament church.
Some of these you're very familiar with and you may remember, some not so much. But you recall Peter, kind of the leader of the twelve, the one with a big mouth, like to put his foot in it quite often. Some people think that Peter died in Rome. That's questionable. The proof text, the only one proof text, 1 Peter 5.13, Peter wrote in his own epistle, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Babylon was kind of a code word for Rome, but some say that Peter was a missionary to Babylon, which was still in existence, though a fallen nation, southeast of Palestine, southeast of Israel, they think that it's, he was really in Babylon. No matter what account you read, Peter is recorded in every account about his death. He was crucified, and by his own request, I am not worthy to die as my Lord put me on the cross upside down. That was the outcome of Peter. James, you may remember at Acts chapter 12, the brother of John was killed by the sword for his preaching. That was in Jerusalem 44 AD. Andrew was crucified in 60 AD on the island of Patros. Philip in 80 AD was stoned to death for his preaching on Heropolis. Thomas, you remember doubting Thomas? the skeptic above, among the group. He died in 72 AD, pierced by spears in Mylapore, India. Thirty years ago, I met the pastor of St. Thomas Church in India. He said they are very glad to say that they are the oldest existing Protestant church in the world. They believe their church was founded by Thomas, and they are still faithful in India. Bartholomew, there are several statues of Bartholomew around the world. They show him of a man who all you see are his, literally his bones and his muscles, and he has his skin draped over his shoulder as though he were holding a cloak. Because Bartholomew was tortured to death. He was skinned alive for preaching the gospel. James, the son of Altheus, Altheus, preached in Jerusalem. He was thrown from the temple. If you get a picture, and you can go online and Google it, and you get a picture of the temple, you find the highest corner. He was taken up there, manhandled up there, and then thrown off hit the stones below. He survived that, so they ran down there with clubs and then beat him to death. Simon the Zealot, we'll talk a little bit more about him later, he was martyred in Syria. Judas, the son of James, also with him, ministering with him, was martyred in Syria. Matthias, the one chosen to replace Judas, went all the way to Georgia, in the Ukraine, where he was stoned to death for preaching the gospel. 
What motivated them to give all for the gospel? What things or concepts would have stopped or quenched their power to share the gospel? We all read the book of Acts, we read the early church history, we read the words of God, and we wonder what in the, how in the world could they have preached the gospel and been so effective and so powerful and so convincing? Maybe what I will offer this morning might help us to see. something to consider. There's no three points in a poem here. It's, this is just kind of a discussion about what is before us because there's some things in here that we very often overlook. In our text, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Timothy was a young pastor at the church of Ephesus, Ephesus, and Paul was giving him instructions. And these instructions apply to churches, apply to the pastors of the churches. What do you do for the people to whom you minister? They can also apply to the lost, but I think it's first to the church. Paul tells them to preach. And all of these commands are in the imperative, so they are things you must do. Preach is an imperative. Be ready. King James says, be instant, in season, and out of season. Be ready to preach when the time is right. Be ready to preach when the time is not right. Just be ready. Kind of gives you the idea of being equipped for battle always. Reprove is a word that used expose. Reveal the error or sin that you see. Be faithful to do this. It too is a verb in the imperative. Rebuke means correct. Tell people what they should be doing instead of what they should not be doing. And then also to exhort, encourage, help. After you've offered correction, encourage. There is a balance of these tasks. There is a balance of these responsibilities for the minister of Christ, of the, or the minister or the Christian. Preach the word, be ready. In season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Complete patience and teaching is what the ESV says. Old Testament or Old King James says long suffering. Some people just look at, oh, the Lord just wants us to be patient. And then we pass on by. Everybody wants patience. The only problem is we want it right now. But I kind of like that word long suffering because that's really what true patience feels like you having to put up with something for a long time before anything gets better like the long suffering of our Lord when we continue in sin why is long suffering for the Christian necessary why is long suffering for the pastor necessary why is long suffering for the Christian leader necessary While we know that the coming to Christ releases us from the bondage of sin, 
it does not always convince us to let it let go of all the ropes. Every one of us knows that in Christ Jesus we have liberty. We've been released from sin. We've been released from its from its condemnation. We've been released from the burden. But then there's always some things that keep tugging at us, keep tempting us. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Give everything to the Lord. That's reasonable for what he's done for you. And then verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Some of the old ideas that you're accustomed to may need to change because they're tied, they're tethered, they're bonds that keep you tied to your old life. Either be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There is a difference. Well, there is very little difference between opinion and conviction. If you really think about it, it's, it's, there's a really fuzzy gray line between opinion and conviction. Some people can hold of an opinion as tightly and strongly and firmly as a, as a conviction. According to the dictionary, opinion an opinion is a view or judgment formed about something not necessarily based on fact or knowledge. I can make a statement just as an example. Carolina blue is the most beautiful color in the world. And some of you who love the wolf pack might say something different. The dictionary defines a conviction as that quality of showing that one is firmly convinced of what one believes or says. So if I'm convinced about my opinion, it can be a conviction. But some convictions are misguided opinions. For example, the Apostle Paul addresses something. Excuse me. It's awful when your hair falls out up here, but then it starts falling out in your whiskers. First Corinthians 8, concerning food offered to idols. Paul deals with this idea of convictions and opinions and bonds that tie people to the old life. Concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, pause, tap your brakes for a minute. If anyone imagines that word there is dokeo, and it really means if anyone has an opinion, 
interesting. That he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. If you're still tied to some bondages, bondage in the old life, if you're still tethered to some old ways, some old-fashioned ways that you need to be free of, you're not quite understanding everything. He does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. It does not deny our salvation. It just may hinder our growth. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there be, may be so maybe so-called gods in heaven or on earth. He's talking about all of the idols that men worship. As indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all, are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Some of you who have been following the study in 1 Corinthians might remember that in old times they were meat offered to idols was taken from the temples of the idols and then sold at the market. And that really bothered some believers. This, is, this, this, this stuff might be connected to demons. And they were afraid. The Apostle Paul said, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. He said, it does not matter. It's a small issue. But take care of this right of yours, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, we, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person, the Apostle Paul uses some strong words here, this Weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now, is Paul saying if someone in your number is, has, is weak in faith and is offended by something you do, I think he's saying perhaps in their presence you should not do it. But don't shut me off yet. There's going to be some balance coming back, swinging back in just a moment. I think he is saying, be patient. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Even for that weak brother, there should be patient exhortation, patient teaching, Patient instruction in prayer. 
Opinions or convictions based on inadequate truth are nothing more than the remnants of former bondage to sin. Opinions or convictions based on inadequate truth are nothing more than remnants of former bondage to sin. We should be, res- we should be patient and respect the, we- the weaker brother. And here comes the balance, swinging back. The weaker brother should not judge another believer who lives in the freedom that the grace of Christ provides. The weaker brother should not judge another believer who lives in the freedom the grace of Christ provides. That was 1 Corinthians 8. Paul follows up in 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat or drink? Here comes the balance. We need to be patient with the weaker brother, but the weaker brother should also be reaching, striving, learning, growing to understand. Romans 2, 4, the Apostle Paul reminds us And in these words, he's reminding us that our kindness and patience with one another communicates and reflects the patience and kindness of the Lord. Paul said, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We wonder why the church does not have the power and the spiritual blessing that the early church had. Maybe it's because too many of us are full of opinions We just won't move. We won't live in Christ's freedom. We've quenched the power of the Spirit, thinking that that just being good and not sinning is enough, but sometimes it's our own personal restrictions. Maybe. Pastors and elders are to shepherd the congregation. And the Lord Jesus Christ called the people sheep. The Old Testament called Israel sheep. And you have heard messages and preachers teach about sheep before. And I think it fits. Sheep are beautiful animals. They are so cute, especially when they're clean and white and fluffy. But they're difficult. They're dumb. Sometimes they bite. They need to be led or directed. They need to be protected. If you leave them out on the lows, some local people have some sheep and their, their fields are fenced in. They're relatively safe, but sheep will still wander off if they're not watched. They will get themselves in danger. They will get themselves in trouble. Shepherding a flock requires diligence. Shepherding a congregation requires diligence and that diligence is strapped to a chair of patience it takes patience to be a shepherd because you've got to do it again and again and again 
It is clearly the definition of long suffering. Only if you're shepherding real sheep, there might be an out because sometimes that really difficult sheep ends up on the supper table. I can hear that shepherd after him going, oh boy, you're looking more yummy the more and more I try and chase you down. Mmm, some good mint jelly. Mmm. Let me give you an example from Christianity. This idea of baptism or the teaching, it is a sacrament. It is a means of grace demonstrated to the church. If you are a Baptist, there's only one way and one way only. Immersion. There are some Baptists who teach that it must be complete immersion. If your hand comes up, if your foot comes up, it doesn't count. It doesn't work. It wasn't good. That, that moves very close to works righteousness. It threatens the truth of the gospel. Presbyterians sprinkle. It's representative. I've known and I must confess. I've been baptized more than once. Nanner, nanner, nanner. As a Baptist. Because I didn't think the first time worked. Foolish opinion. But scripture tells us we are of one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Father of all. So baptism is administered once. It is representative. It represents the filling of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit's watch, care over, if it were a child, a child of the covenant. If this were a Baptist church and a Presbyterian wanted to join, we would have to insist if they weren't immersed, they needed to be immersed or they couldn't join. If a Baptist came here and they professed faith in Christ Jesus and said they have been baptized, that's fine. No need to do it again. Now, of course, we think we're correct but we look at the way some churches consider some of the things that, that are practiced in church, and some of them are just based on opinion, although people consider it conviction. There's no truth or validity to it. The 12 apostles gave their lives for the gospel and the glory of God. Now, where did they begin? Each and every one of them were personal choice of Christ, their shepherd. Jesus came to every one of them, one at a time. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Every one of them 
had their own agenda. Every one of them had their own opinion. And for three years, the Lord Jesus taught them, discipled them, trained them, counseled them, exhorted them, encouraged them. They saw him preach. They heard him preach. They saw his miracles. They saw his love. They saw his grace. But they clung tightly to their agenda. I can't wait till he's ready to take the kingdom. I can't wait till he... James and John desired the place of honor. Had their own mother come and ask him, would you please have my boys sit on either side of your throne in the kingdom? Peter had the ability to lead. He was a strong personality. He wasn't dumb, but he was very opinionated. And the Lord Jesus Christ was asking his disciples some questions because he wanted to pop quiz brothers when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples who do the people say the son of man is they said some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets he said to them but who do you say that I am Listen, boys, I want to know if you're getting this. I've been teaching you for almost three years now. Do you know what's going on? And Peter was the one who said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Not a minute later, the Lord was telling them, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders of the chief priests and the the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Do you remember what happened? Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus pointed finger in Peter's face get thee behind me Satan this is your opinion this is your agenda this has no place in my mission Thomas Thomas was the skeptic I think the late president Reagan would like him trust but verify Thomas was the skeptic Simon Zealotes, that wasn't his last name. That was his trade. That was his practice. Simon was a zealot. That meant he was a terrorist. He hated the Romans. He did everything he could to sabotage them, to kill them, to murder them. It was a practice of the zealots in a big crowd when all the Roman soldiers were around the perimeter of the crowd just keeping order They would come up behind them in a crowd, pull a dagger out from under their cloak and murder the soldier and then slip away unnoticed. I don't know if Simon ever did that, but he was part of that group. He had an agenda. He had an opinion about what what he expected the Lord to do for him. For three years, 
Jesus was their teacher, he was their shepherd, he was their Lord. And even when they came to the time in the garden, he asked nine of his followers, sit here while I go and pray. He took James and John and Peter further into the garden. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he prayed those famous words, those, that famous prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not that I will, but thy will be done. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came back and found them sleeping. This was the Lord's first dream. This was the Lord's best choice. James and John and Peter. Not once, but twice. Still, the shepherd was patient. When Christ was arrested, Peter cursed and denied him three times, and they all ran and hid in terror. He still went to the cross for their redemption. After the resurrection, the great shepherd came to them where they were hiding. He just appeared in their room, patiently showing them all of the result of what he had promised and what he had taught them. I've been telling you for three years this was going to happen. Here it is. It is for the glory of my Father and it's for your redemption. You're free. This was the shepherd delivering what he had promised. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. How often has he been patient with you? How often does he still wait? He remained. He remained for 40 days. The Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, he reminds them that he was there for 40 days after his resurrection. As many as 500 people at one time saw him alive. In Matthew 28, beginning of verse 17, when they he had told them to meet him up on a certain mountain. He said, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. He was about to ascend into heaven. Some saw him, is that Jesus or is this that bad Chinese food I had for lunch? If I were the Lord at that moment, after all I'd been through and after all I had done, after all I had accomplished, I probably would have said, okay, I'm out of here. I'm done with you. But God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. 
there is a balance of these tasks and responsibilities for the Christian minister. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering, with complete patience in teaching. Opinions or convictions based on inadequate truth are nothing more than remnants of a former bondage to sin. Should we have patient respect for the weaker brother? Yes, we should. But the weaker brother should not judge another believer who lives in the freedom that the grace of Christ provides. That freedom, that freedom is available to all. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord for this day and for your word and its truth and we pray that as we look together into this lesson that your spirit might clarify it reveal to us misunderstandings any stubbornness any willfulness Lord, let us be gracious toward one another. Let us be loving toward one another. Let us be patient with one another that your name might be glorified, that your word might be true in our lives, that your spirit and power might be effective in our ministry. We ask this for the sake of God's glory. 